Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Today we had a lot of diverse and interesting opinions to cover on issues across the LGBTQ plus spectrum. First, we're going to be talking about a fantastic Fourth Circuit ruling impacting HIV positive Air Force pilots. Then we'll talk about a horrendous Fifth Circuit opinion on a transgender inmate seeking basic respect by way of a name change and use of pronouns in court. And finally, we'll talk about a family law case from the Texas Court of Appeals involving a lesbian divorce case on child support. With us is Professor Art Leonard, professor at New York Law School, chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal developments here in abroad. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. All right. You're very busy. Um, let's dig right in. We have so many interesting cases in this uh, edition of Law Notes. The first we're going to talk about is an active duty uh, member of the Air Force, Richard Rowe uh, and Victor Vo, so two, were discharged from the Air Force because of their HIV positive status. The Fourth Circuit affirmed an injunction against the Department of Defense and declared that the policy that discharges HIV positive servicemen members was arbitrary and capricious and based on outdated science. This is a big win for HIV, uh, HIV civil rights in, in the military. Well, it's it's a big win if we can if we can keep, keep it. it because uh, <laughs> everything is always only for now. But because, go on. Because the Trump administration will undoubtedly re- appeal this. Uh, but uh, the situation is uh, that people who are HIV positive are not allowed to enlist. Okay, if people test positive after they've enlisted, uh, the Defense Department policy, broadly stated, is that being HIV positive is not itself a ground to discharge someone. Uh, and you're supposed to make an individual determination of their health and their ability to fulfill their functions and uh, do they have their infection under control, are they taking medication, are they undetectable, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Make an individual determination. But the Air Force doesn't see it that way. Uh, and part of the reason that we got a victory in this case was the disconnect between Defense Department guidelines and regs Science. and Air Force guidelines and oh, regs. Okay. And also the fact that the Air Force Uh, the Air Force set up a system that is calculated to ignore the individual health status of the individual, which makes it arbitrary and capricious. All right, so these guys, uh, when they tested positive, they they went on medication, their viral loads are undetectable. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them is taking uh, one pill a day, it's a combination, another one's taking two pills a day. Uh, these pills don't require any special storage or refrigeration or anything like that. You just keep them in a pill case and you dispense them. They can prescribe large numbers of them at a time. This isn't, isn't one of those control things where you can't get more than 30 per prescription or something like that. Uh, so they can travel with it with a significant supply and everything. Uh, so, And the officers who are their direct supervisors who know them say they're, they're terrific guys. Let's keep them. Yep. But uh, under the Air Force's rules... In order to be considered fit for service, you have to be deployable. And you have to be deployable to CENTCOM, Central Command, which is where the overwhelming majority of Air Force pilots are sent. Central Command is basically the command for all active military stuff going on outside the US. 
so uh, in order to be deployable to CENTCOM, you have to be, and you're HIV positive, you have to be cleared through a process of an internal uh, review process. And the internal review process said that these men have to be discharged because they're not deployable. And the question is, why are they not deployable? And the answer is, because we say so. <laughs> you know, it's one of those <laughs> things, they, they say it's not a categorical policy, and yet they don't care that these people are completely healthy. Yeah. You know, and that they don't present a risk of transmission to anyone else because we have very good data now that if you're, if you're taking the combination meds and you've got uh, undetectable viral load, you're not going to transmit, transmit the virus. Yeah. Even if in an emergency on a battlefield you are used as a source for a blood transfusion, the chances that you will transmit HIV under those circumstances if you're current on your medication is virtually nothing. And in fact, uh, the data that they have in the opinion, they said the rate of transmission for people who don't know they're HIV positive are not being treated, mm -hmm. and they have detectable viral load, is 0.23 percent mm. is the possibility right. that they'll transmit. So, and besides, battlefield transfusions from Air Force pilots, right? I don't, not too likely. So, they the Air Force does say it's not a categorical exclusion because you can get a waiver. Well, how do you get a waiver? You apply for one to someone who's in charge in the Pentagon on behalf of the Air Force for issuing waivers. What's their criterion for a waiver? You have to be completely healthy and you can't be infected with HIV. <laughs> they, the, the person who testified, who gave testimony here, who makes these decisions said, it's, it's, it would be very, very difficult to justify a waiver. And one of the grounds that they raised was, they said, there are certain countries that don't allow you to enter their country if you're HIV positive. And that's true. Yeah. Are they countries where we have active military stuff going on? Are they countries that would apply that to U.S. troops who are coming in, where they're going to be housed on a U.S. base, you know, to yeah. do U.S. But they didn't provide any of that detail. They just said, in general, there are countries. Yeah. And you've got to be deployable everywhere. Yeah. We've got to be able to send you anywhere in the world that we need an Air Force pilot. Right. Uh, but they didn't provide any detail. And they didn't, they didn't explain that if, whether they've asked those countries if it's okay if they bring in, you know, pilots who have undetectable viral load. Yeah. So the court said basically they're applying a categorical rule. They're claiming that uh, HIV is a special case because it needs special, specialized treatment and all this kind of stuff. And the court says, no, they're taking pills. Mm -hmm. When they're taking the pills, they've got to get tested for viral load like every six months. And that's it. It's not like, you know, the, the, there's all kinds right. of... They've got their heads in the sand of the 1980s, as right. if, you know, the HIV before we had medications. And the court says, this is archaic. This is obsolete. Yeah. And it violates the Administrative Procedure Act, among other things, uh, to use a categorical policy here when the current medical data doesn't support it. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't work. So the Fourth Circuit affirmed uh, Judge Brinkheimer's uh, from the uh, Eastern District of Virginia, uh, the injunction. It's a nationwide injunction in the sense that the injunction says these guys and similarly situated HIV-positive Air Force pilots okay. or Air Force personnel. Uh, now, the Trump administration automatically opposes all nationwide injunctions, so I can't imagine they're not going to either ask the Fourth Circuit for on bank or go, you know, ask the Supreme Court. And... Uh, this is where uh, you mentioned to me before the podcast, uh, Justice Sotomayor uh, recently, I think it was, was it a concurrence or a dissent? But it was a dissent. A dissent right. Uh, the Trump administration has now taken 
to going to the Supreme Court like automatically knee-jerk response if a lower federal court enjoins them. them. Yeah. Uh, immediately apply to the Supreme Court. Say it's an emergency. Say you have to allow this policy to go into effect while the case is being litigated on the merits. Yep. And this latest one was this, this new public charge thing on immigration. So they go up there and the court grants them what they're asking for. They stay the injunction while the litigation is pending, five to four, evidently. And uh, Justice Sotomayor in her dissent says, you know, we're becoming a rubber stamp here. And one of the problems is when the court does this, they don't issue a decision explaining why they're doing it. Right. They just treat this as a procedural thing. They're ruling on a motion by the government. Yeah. Uh, and so we have no articulation by the court of the actual merits of staying the injunction. Right. Which, uh, when these injunctions, I mean, the federal district judges take this seriously. There has to be a very, very serious chance that the plaintiffs are going to prevail on the right. case. Yeah. And that there's going to be substantial harm if the policy is allowed to go into effect. People right. will be injured, et cetera. And the public interest is endangered by allowing these policies to go into effect. Right. Uh, and, you know, the federal district judge, they take it seriously. They go down the checklist. They make finding, detailed findings of fact to justify preliminary injunctions. And the Court of Appeals, in this case, like this Fourth Circuit case, they have a pretty uh, extensive decision going through all the medical testimony right. and everything. Now, the Trump administration asked for a, a stay on the injunction, and the Supreme Court just, just rubber stamps it without the discussion. It's outrageous. It is, yeah. It's totally outrageous. It's like the Supreme Court has been engrafted onto the Trump administration as another branch of the Trump, of the executive branch. Yeah. These rubber stamp states. And Sotomayor spoke out in a dissent, which is the right. appropriate way for a justice to be able to kind of issue their dissent with what's happening at the court. And then Trump tweeted about Sotomayor today. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of like, how do we defend the norms and... Well, people got to go to the polls in November and do the right thing. And I don't think the gal is not in the business. Can everybody at the Justice story. Department just leave? Everybody at the Justice Department? Yeah, besides Barr and Trump cronies. <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice. <laughs> okay. But they, 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 would just stock up, they would just stock up the Solicitor General's office. Because they're the people who are filing these applications for All them. Right. They just stock it up with new people. Yeah. Fascinating. And fascinating case and another fascinating right. uh, so look at how Roe the Supreme Court... Roe versus United States Department of Defense. Roe and Vo. Uh Yeah. For those of you who are looking for it, it's, it's already got a, a Fed Third site, uh, 947 Fed Third 207. It's a, it's a really big and important win and kudos to... I believe this is Lambda Legal and Scott Shadows' case, so congratulations. All right, let's take a little break, and when we come back, we'll talk about, um, oof, the Fifth Circuit. All right, we're back. A transgender prisoner sought to change her name to Catherine Nicole Jett on her federal criminal commitment after obtaining a Kentucky state court order changing her name. She also requested that she be addressed using female pronouns. In a disgusting decision by a new circuit court judge appointed by Trump, Stuart Kyle Duncan, who we all knew would be horrible and anti-trans, uh, based on an anti-trans history of advocacy, vacated the decision and denied all relief. It's a revolting opinion, but go ahead and give it to us in your best possible, like, neutral spin art, unless you want to just go neutral all spin. off on this well, disgusting... for one thing, on the merits, uh, they said that she waited too long to ask for this from the court. And okay. that under the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, she should have asked earlier in the litigation. 
And uh, so uh, while the district court actually denied her, her motion, this court vacated the decision entirely, saying that the district judge didn't even have jurisdiction to issue a ruling, which means that should have been the end of the case. But Judge Duncan could not forbear from writing an intensely transphobic decision, yeah. uh, which uh, said, you know, we federal courts, we don't have any authority to recognize gender, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, new gender and stuff like this. He, he says, uh, the fed- uh, and we point out in the writing, uh, Bill Rold, who writes our prisoner litigation cases for us, did an article on this. The Federal Bureau of Prisons has a policy that allows transgender prisoners to use a second name as an alias and authorizes staff to use either gender neutral or an inmate's requested gender specific pronoun or salutation when interacting with transgender inmates. So the federal government itself recognizes this and says... And so do courts all across the country. But, right, wrote Judge Duncan, a federal court cannot require litigants, judges, court personnel, or anyone else to refer to gender dysphoric litigants with pronouns matching their subjective gender identity, right? Subjective gender identity. In other words, oh, this isn't real. They're just playing at this. And gender dysphoric, not every person who is transgender has gender dysphoria. You know, gender dysphoria is a uh, condition that may call for medical treatment depending on how intense it is and the, the... the diagnosis of the individual case on a case-by-case basis, as some courts, but not the Fifth Circuit, have said. You know, the Ninth Circuit has said in the Edmo case, for example, uh, which we'll be discussing next month. But uh, he, he wrote, we understand Varner's motion as seeking at a minimum to require the district court and the government to refer to Varner with female instead of male pronouns. Varner cites no legal authority supporting this request which is ridiculous because numerous courts have routinely, and they, they, it's almost like they have a macro for the, for the footnote, because the uh, inmate or because the petitioner or the plaintiff identifies as female, we will use female pronouns. Right. Or we will use the name that she is using uh, as a courtesy. Uh, he says, well, some courts have adopted a convention of using female pronouns. There is no binding precedent that requires courts and parties to refer to, quote, gender dysphoric inmates by their preferred pronouns. Oh, my God. Uh, and then, uh, and, and you know, was he trying to be funny here? He said, courts have gone both ways on this issue. Oh, gross. <laughs> it's, it's like he, he decided to have some fun at the expense of a transgender litigant when it wasn't even necessary for him to write any of this stuff. Will you tell us a little bit about the, dis- the dissent? In yeah, there is, a, there is a dissent. Uh, Judge Dennis... Uh, said if the majority really felt there was no jurisdiction, it could have so ruled in a few sentences without any pronouns at all. Uh, Thus, this is an improper advisory opinion, creating a controversy where there is none, and that the majority enlarged Varna's application about pronouns beyond all reasonable scope. She only wanted to be addressed with female pronouns in the Fifth Circuit while her appeal on the merits was being dealt with. Right. I mean, think about the Amy Stevens case before the Supreme Court and how everyone respected either by not using pronouns at all, using the plaintiff name, but in all of it, there was respect for the pronouns that Amy used. Judge Dennis didn't mean you were weighing in on the decision. Right. Judge Dennis cites decisions from the first, second, third, fourth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth circuits 
Uh, the only one missing here is the 11th. Not, not a surprise. Yeah. The eastern half of the old fifth. Yeah. Well, the the point is, if you're representing trans clients in court, there is a broad history for asking under under judicial canons, etc., for motions for the court to respect the name and pronouns of the transgender client. Courts do it all the time. This is a really disgusting well, Duncan, opinion. Duncan that, also suggested that by accepting the request to uh, name the petitioner here uh, by using the female male name and pronouns, the court would be taking a position on a contested right. issue. Right. As if that happened in the Amy Stevens case. You know, that we're using right. female pronouns. Right. Um, okay. Well, this, and, 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 and I think, I remember reading the transcript of the oral argument of the Supreme Court. I think female pronouns were used yeah. to refer to the petitioner oh, yeah. and the gender identity. Yeah. Okay, well, um, wow, what a, what a case. Let's take a break, and we're not really going to leave this area of the country. We're going to come back and talk about the state court system, but again, uh, we're talking about Texas. The Texas Court of Appeals ruled that a trial court could order a lesbian co-parent to pay child support for a child born during a marriage as a result of donor insemination agreed upon by the spouses. Following the Supreme Court's ruling in Obergefell, the court found that equal treatment of same-sex marriages required this result, despite the failure of Texas statutes to recognize same-sex spouses as parents. Art, tell us about this case. Okay. Uh, These two women, Jennifer and Sandra, Uh, from Texas, but Texas didn't have marriage equality yet, so they went to New Mexico to get married in August 2014, but they live in Texas. Uh, During their unfortunately brief marriage, they decided to have a kid. Uh, Jennifer already had a child unrelated to their relationship. Uh, They decided that that, uh, Sandra would have the kid, and they did a donor insemination. They paid a guy to donate sperm. Uh, Jennifer injected the sperm, and uh, they went to doctor's appointments together. And when the child was born, they both were uh, considered parents. And then they eventually got a divorce. Okay. And uh, Jennifer said, uh, this is not my biological child. I shouldn't have to pay child support mm. uh, as part of Lesbians the divorce Lesbians behaving badly. Uh, well, maybe she hadn't bonded with the child. I don't know. Oh, my God. But at any rate, uh, she argued that under the statutes in Texas, she should not be recognized as a legal parent because the definition of a parent did not include a same-sex spouse. And the provisions of the Texas uh, Family Code dealing with who is a parent uh, refer to the birth mother, obviously okay. the, the mother. They just use the term mother, but they're referring to the birth mother. And then various men yeah. who were either sperm uh, sources or husbands or whatever. Uh, and the argument to the court was, well, now we have same-sex marriage. And furthermore, the Uniform Parentage Act, which Texas did adopt in 2000, says the provisions of this chapter relating to the determination of paternity apply to a determination of maternity. So why not just say that uh, since Obergefell requires, and Pavan versus Smith definitely requires, mm-hmm. that was the birth certificate case from Arkansas, since these cases require that same-sex marriages be treated the exactly same as the same. different-sex marriages for all purposes of law, then the presumption 
of parentage to go along with that. If you are married to a woman who gives birth, you are deemed a parent, parent. whether you're male or female. And what, yeah. And so the Texas Court of Appeals says, yeah, and, uh, Hmm. you know, we we can say this as we're interpreting the statute. We can say that the Uniform Parentage Act gives us license to do it because we're making a maternity determination. Mm-hmm. And we're using the same uh, test that we would use for a paternity uh, determination. Yeah. Was the person who is going to be deemed a parent married to the birth mother? Mm. And furthermore, I mean, at the time, she was an intended parent, obviously. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So uh, under under the uh, jurisprudence of many other states, the fact that she was an intended parent would take care of the problem, even before they had same-sex marriage. Yeah. In places like California and New Jersey. Yeah. A few others. Uh, so this is an unusually good decision from Texas. Right. But I, I fault the court only for not stating, and the legislature should revise the Texas Family Code mm, yeah. to reflect the reality right. that we have same-sex marriage in Texas. Maybe we didn't want it. Maybe our legislature, did, our legislature didn't go for it. Maybe our state courts didn't go for it. But we have to abide by the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court and the Fifth Circuit. Yeah. And so everything that flows from that. Not that the Texas legislature would listen. Well, you never know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you never know. Oh, boy. All right. So do you have an of note for us? Or are I, we I just always like... try to come up with an of note. And this is a, a stupid weird of note. Uh, a decision, a uh, an article that was written by my research assistant this semester, Philip Kuchevich. Okay. Uh, the Minnesota Court of Appeals says that the hate crime law doesn't apply to an anti-transgender crime uh, hmm. because it doesn't mention it specifically. But it doesn't. The federal hate crimes law or the state, state law? The okay. state hate crimes law. The, the state hate crimes law covers sex, but it doesn't say sex. It says gender. So this was a creative argument here. Uh, this, this was a confrontation that took place uh, at a convenience store, a gas station, uh, where a uh, transgender woman was there and was a customer, and uh, a guy who was there with his girlfriend got all excited and started asking questions, let me see your genitals, et cetera, that kind yeah. of stuff. And they got into a bit of an argument. The guy drew a gun oh my God. and ended up shooting the transgender woman in the shoulder. Uh, and it was a mess. And uh, the prosecutors wanted to uh, include a hate crime count. Yeah. And the court, the, the trial court rejected it on the grounds that it doesn't cover gender identity. It only covers gender. And wow. the Court of Appeals affirmed with a dissent saying, just a minute, it says gender, and this is about gender, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Gender is how you enact your sex. But what the uh, Court of Appeals did, it's the old dictionary ploy which we used to run into in marriage cases. Yeah. Back in the early days of marriage litigation, the court would say, well, we looked up marriage in Black's Law Dictionary, and it says the union of a man and a woman, so you can't be suing for marriage because same-sex marriage isn't a marriage. Right? Yeah, yeah. We had these stupid decisions. Uh-huh. So now the court says, well, we have to look at contemporary dictionaries to the time the hate crime law was passed to find out what gender means. And we looked oh, at a dictionary, God. and it uh-huh. says gender is just another word for sex. And everyone knows. I mean, you ask anyone... These days, they know there's a difference between gender and sex. Uh-huh. Sex is basically your biological sex, yeah. your chromosomes. Gender is how you enact your sex, mm-hmm. how you live the role you occupy in your life. And that's real, too. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, these conservative judges saying, oh, they're preferred gender or they're assumed gender. It's their gender gender. It's their gender. Yeah. 
Well, uh, it, not to mention the fact that we're talking about a hate crimes law and that just by logic, by logic that you're looking for to protect groups that are marginalized in a hate crimes law, that you're looking to criminalize people that are targeted because of violence and the natural extension of people who need to be covered by hate crime statute are people who are subjected to high risks of, of violence and hate. Right. And that's transgender people. And so I just don't understand. Well, the dissenting judge wrote, Judge Servio, yeah, the victim was targeted specifically because she was identified as biologically male at birth, but now is living a female gender identity. So this is a classic example of harassment based on the victim's gender. Yes, of course. Making it appropriate for the prosecution to bring charges under the ethnic intimidation statute, which was specifically designed to protect victims against gender-inspired harassment. Yes. That's what this is. That's what it is. So, you know, we've got a bad court there out of Minnesota. Or at least it's a two- to three-judge panel. Maybe it'll go to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Interesting. We're talking about new decisions, so they could be appeals. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Art. We appreciate this rundown. Uh, Thank you for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on iTunes if that's where you listen. It helps people find us. We'll be back next month with a new edition of the LGBT Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. Thank you so much.